The King is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. Love that song. Trustin is a junior in our high school here at Centennial. We're so thankful for uh, the talent God's given him. And he would fit right in in India because in India you have to take your shoes off to go into church. Perfect. Work out great. Love that. We're in Acts chapter 1 this morning. The notes are provided in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with us. And we're in our series, Turning Caring into Sharing. And coming back from a mission trip, it's natural that our message today would be on the Christian Commission. And uh, once again, it's, it's great to be back. Uh, I think most of the team has gotten over jet lag, but it takes five or six days for that far of a trip. Uh, they're 11 and a half hours ahead of us. And it's a weird time zone. The whole nation of India is on the half hour. Um, so, so it's kind of a weird getting used to thing, but we thoroughly enjoyed our time there. But as Dorothy said, there's no place like home. And uh, so, so there's a, really a misconception, I think, that creeps into American Christianity way too often that we have this church thing figured out, right? Because we're Americans. And so we, because we're Americans, we've got church figured out. And by the way, Americans, we still think we're the top of everything, right? We're still the best in math, and we don't realize that 15 nations have higher math scores than we do. We're still the best at this, and we, you know, the Olympics comes around, USA, USA. Um, and, and so we kind of get this mentality sometimes in the church world, too. And I can promise you that nothing will blow that misconception to smithereens like a foreign mission trip. Um, to see the commitment to Christ that dear saints and other places have for our Lord truly shames me in so many ways. To see the pastors in India and the humility in their lives, it just blows me away. And, and this morning our text is in Acts chapter 1, where we're going to see the Christian commission given by Jesus to his disciples and his future disciples. So verse number one. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Still thinking it was a political reason why he had come. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? 
the same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip, at Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Let's pray. Father, would you work this morning in this message in our hearts. Help us as a church to understand what you'd have for us regarding the Great Commission. We pray that you would make us pliable and moldable in your hands as your servants. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to have uh, Andrew and Summer Maddox here this morning, and they just got in Thursday night from a cross-country move coming from Tupelo, Mississippi. How many of you ever been to Tupelo, Mississippi? God bless your hearts. Oh, goodness. Um, but I hope that uh, you'll get to know these new members of our ministry team, and they're coming to sing before the message, and I know you'll be blessed by it. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my Your grace is more Where grace is found Is where you are And where you are Lord, I am free Holiness is Christ in me Lord, I need you Oh, fall on you, Jesus. 
for that. I appreciate it. Uh, we have enjoyed getting to really know them over these last few days. And yeah, to be praying for Edra and Summer, uh, they have uh, some big steps that need to happen here. They're first on the waiting list for an apartment. And uh, so I don't really know how to pray as a church. You have to pray that somebody gets evicted. Uh, <laughs> pray that somebody moves. <laughs> no, pray for their apartment. And also, if you would, pray for Andrew. He's going to be, need to get a part-time job. And if you have any ideas or help for them, if you just speak to them. Um, Summer's going to be teaching the first grade in our, in our Christian school. And Andrew's going to be uh, leading our children's ministries in days to come. And, and we're so excited that God's brought them here. Um, I was reading the story of uh, a man in Indonesia and uh, not too far from where we were there in India. His name was Rodden. And uh, Rodden uh, was a fighter. And he had learned um, ninja and jiu-jitsu and a variety of other techniques for taking people down. And uh, Rodden uh, became a Christian. And one day he was sharing the gospel in a village there in Indonesia with people who had never heard of Jesus. And he was in a house uh, sharing Christ with the family, and the witch doctor from the village came into the house. And the witch doctors and, and the magic men, of course, are, are common in villages like these all over in that region of the world. And they really hold the entire community sway with their curses and their incantations. And, and so the witch doctor called Rodden out, and he wanted, he wanted Rodden to fight him. And, of course, Rodden smiled. Uh, he, he confessed in, in the story I was reading where he said, My first thought was to walk out there and take the witch doctor down. Because <laughs> I knew all the tricks. Um, but when he turned to go outside, the Lord put a peace in him that he no longer needed to do the fighting. That God would do the fighting for him. And, and so he walked outside, he pulled up a chair and sat it down in front of the witch doctor. And he said to the witch doctor, I don't do the fighting, my God does the fighting for me. And uh, he talked about what happened next. The witch doctor attempted to speak, and he began to gasp for air. He was choking, and he couldn't breathe. And within a few minutes, people came running and see what was wrong. But within a few minutes, the witch doctor had fallen over dead. 
And by now, the entire village had crowded around the scene. And Rodden said, I'd never seen anything like this, and I didn't know what to do. But then I thought, I guess this is a good time to preach the gospel. (laughs) And so that's what he did. And many people in the village trusted Christ for the first time that day. Now, that is not really an American story, is it? Uh, We don't really see things like that in the United States very often. Spreading the gospel the way that Jesus intended is not as programmable as American ministries sometimes make it out to be. We often talk about things like the sinner's prayer, which is never in the Bible. We talk about things like accepting Jesus as if it's, you know, some unique thing that you could just grab onto, or deciding to become a Christian. In the book of Acts and in countries around the world, becoming a Christ follower is much more intense than accepting Jesus or praying a prayer. In fact, in India, uh, Hindus will gladly add Jesus to their list of 300 million plus gods. But to become children of God requires them to make Christ alone their hope of salvation. To become a child of God in Muslim Indonesia or Iran means likely imprisonment and possible execution by your own family. The book of Acts doesn't paint the picture of casual American Christianity. When you read these 28 chapters, it is a story of disciples who believe so deeply and followed so closely to Jesus that they were stoned, beaten, placed in dungeons, even beheaded. And I'm not here this morning to put a guilt trip on anyone, but I think we need a return sometimes to the actual scriptural mandate of the Great Commission. We know it by heart. We could all probably say, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and you should be witnesses unto me. And we we read the passage here in Acts 1. But what's the meaning behind it? And even when we say to preach the gospel to every creature, is that a gospel where we could pray a prayer, have an assurance of heaven, and never live for God the rest of our lives? Is that real salvation? Is that what the gospel of Christ really is? And so, as we think about those things this morning, I had a glimpse in Acts of, uh, you probably remember the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. He stumbles in and says to Paul and Silas, who are singing hymns in prison, he says, what must I do to be saved? You know, it wasn't really a vacation Bible school or church camp setting. He knew up front that joining a community of Christians meant that he would be beaten, flogged, and imprisoned. And when they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, it wasn't some trite expression. It wasn't a one, two, three, pray after me. It wasn't a rock concert where we say, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven. It was a commitment a lifelong commitment that he would make with his entire family. 
And so the meaning of the gospel is huge. Could I say something a little abrupt to you this morning? Uh, some of you are, have already fallen asleep. Service has been so long already. And we need to get those floor mats that they were talking about. They have in India. They just have these rugs they lay out and everybody sits on the floor. Um, if our lives don't reflect any fruit of following the Savior, we are foolish to think that we're actually followers of Jesus in the first place. You catch what I said? If our lives don't reflect any fruit of the Savior, it's foolish for us to think we're followers of Christ. Four out of five Americans identify themselves as Christians. Isn't that amazing? Four out of five Americans identify themselves as Christians. But less than half of that group are involved in any church. Less than half of that group say that the Bible is accurate. In fact, they marked on their survey where it said, is the Bible accurate? They marked the one that said, in some things. That's a real Christ follower, right? Only a sliver of the group have a biblical view of the world around them. And let me just take it up a notch. This is a Pew Forum research poll. Let's talk about born-again Christians. Do you know that half of all Americans describe themselves as born-again Christians? As if there's any other type of Christian? As if there's some other way to be a Christian other than to be born again? But there are people who say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus and who believe they'll go to heaven because they've accepted Him as Savior. But out of that group, here's what the research shows. Now this is astounding. Their beliefs and lifestyles are virtually indistinguishable from the rest of the world around them. No one would ever accuse them of being a Christian, even though they would claim to be themselves. Many of them think that their works can earn them a place in heaven. Others marked on their survey that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Some believe Jesus sinned while he was on the earth. And a huge number of them describe themselves as being only marginally committed to Jesus. Just enough to get to heaven. I don't believe that's why Jesus died on the cross. After you read the research, you might be tempted to think that Christians aren't really different from the rest of the world. Could I give you a much scarier version? There are a whole lot of people who think that they're Christians, but aren't. Jesus described them in Luke when he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. You might remember the reply. They said, but Lord, we've done all these things in your name. I mean, ha don't, haven't you seen what we've done for you? And Jesus said in the parable, Depart from me, I never knew you. People who claim to be Christians, while their lives look no different from the rest of the world, are clearly not Christians. If you're going to meet a friend for lunch, and he walked in 20 minutes late, and he said, I'm sorry I was late, um, had something break down at the house, and uh, had to work on that, and then I had a phone call, and then I walked out on the street, and a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour hit me. Now, 
you would know that he was lying. Right? Because if someone gets hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles per hour, that person is going to look very different than he did before. You know, once people truly come face to face with Jesus, they're going to look very different. It's not just the words. It's the authentic heart reality. And so when we say go into the world and preach the gospel, first we have to understand what the gospel really is. I'm not here to make anyone doubt salvation today. But we need to come to grips with the fact that the Acts 1 version of the gospel may not be what we've subscribed to. The Americanized gospel in many ways looks nothing like the gospel of Christ. And in our pride and arrogance, we often manipulate the good news of Jesus to be all about fulfilling our personal dreams. In fact, there are big-name speakers in Christianity who are going around preaching what you might call the prosperity gospel. That Jesus saved you, and now you can have a nice car. Jesus saved you, and now you can have a big house. And whatever you dream at work, it can be yours. If you just pray and ask Jesus. That's not what Jesus said. He said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. In fact, he told the disciples, the ones who want to follow him, hey, he said, listen, the birds of the air have nests. The foxes have holes. But I don't even have a place to lay my head. His pillow was a stone. And so the prosperity gospel is most certainly not New Testament theology. But sometimes we begin to distort the gospel to fit the American dream. And we kind of confuse the two because the American dream is this awesome thing, right? You could come from any place on earth to America and have the opportunity to succeed. And so when we confuse those two, we distort the gospel of Christ. We're going to find out as we go through the passage today that the gospel is not about us. It's entirely about Jesus, by His grace and for His glory. So in your notes, let's talk about receiving power. Receiving power. I get mailers on my desk and junk mail in my inbox every day. Come to this conference and learn what it takes to be a successful pastor. Come to this conference and your church will double in size within six months. I had day after day, periodical after periodical, junk mail after junk mail. And we have warehouses full of means and methods and plans and strategies for doing church that require little, if any, power from God. I could tell you what church growth guides say. Here's what they say. We have to have a good performance. Somebody has to captivate the crowds. We've got to compete with the entertainment industry. If church is not as exciting as watching a movie, people won't come. Right? If church isn't like the amusement park, people won't come. And listen, the speaker's got to have some great charisma. And it's better if we can show them on a giant screen. And then we have to gather resources to build multi-million dollar facilities to house the performance every week. After all, that's what our culture expects. And then once we get the crowds in, 
We need to start programs to keep them coming back. First class, top of the line programs for kids, for youth, for families, every age and stage of life. And in order to have these programs, we need professionals to run them. We don't want people trying this at home. But so many American churches have convinced themselves that if we can position our resources and we can organize our strategies, then we can accomplish anything we set our minds to. It's really shocking that American churches and Christians can carry out most of our spiritual activities smoothly, even successfully, never realizing that the Holy Spirit is virtually absent from the picture. Look at Acts 1 again. As Jesus speaks, verse number 8, But ye shall receive power. See, until they received power, they could do absolutely nothing. Jesus had already told them just a few days before, without me, ye can do nothing. And we would do so well as American Christians to realize that we can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. We can't live and breathe as Christians without the breath of God. So we have to really understand receiving power. But then I want you to see looking steadfastly. Very, very next verse, Jesus is taken up and a cloud receives him out of their sight. He ascended. The disciples were left behind, this ragged group of Galilean men looking at the sky. And you can just see him standing there. Possibly in awe, taking in God's glory. Wow! Where'd he go? And they're watching. It could be that they were there with multiple questions. How will we? What will we? Where do we? Possibly there was some self-pity. How could he? When will he come back? That's what they're wondering. And we find in verse 10 that the disciples were given an angelic reprimand for gazing up into heaven instead of acting on the commission. (laughs) Verse number 11. Here these men had appeared in verse 10 and they said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? You know, modern believers tend to have the same issue when we make ourselves the object of Christianity. If you were to ask the average Christian, in fact, if we asked you today, sitting in the worship service, just like this one on a Sunday morning, to summarize the message of Christianity. What's the message of Christianity? You know what most people would say? The message of Christianity is, God loves me. Right? Isn't that what most of us would say? In fact, what's the most popular song you sang as a kid? Jesus loves me. This I know is popular. We know this one. Got this one figured out. Another person might say the message of Christianity is that God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me. And that, of course, sounds really good. But is that the real gospel? I want you to think about it for a minute. God loves me. 
if that's the message of Christianity, then who is the object of Christianity? If God loves me, is the gospel, then I become the focal point of my own Christianity. Me. And when I look for a church, I look for music that best fits me. And programs that cater to me and to my family. When I make plans for my life and my career, it's about what works best for me and my family. What is my position in the church? What is God leading me to do? When I consider the house I live in or the clothes I'll wear or the car I'll drive or the way I'll live, I'm going to choose according to what's best for me. And that's the version of Christianity that we so often see today. But it's not biblical Christianity. It's not even close to biblical Christianity. The message of the Christianity presented in the Word of God is that God loves me so that I might make Him known among all nations. See, God is the object of our faith. Christianity centers around Him. We are at the end of the Gospel. He is. Everything we say, everything we do, think, spend, should be with that view in mind. That God is the center of the Gospel. You know, it takes so many things out of play. I don't have to worry about me anymore. You may remember what John the Baptist said. It's such a profound quote in John chapter 3. You know what he said? He must increase, and I must decrease. If we could take I, me, we, us out of our Christianity, God could be much more glorified. It's amazing what can be done in a local church when we understand that God's the one who gets all the credit. He's the one. He's the center of the gospel. And He's the center of the commission. Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And you keep reading and He says, Lo, I will be with you. See, it's all about Him. Even the spreading of the commission is about, all about Him. Let's talk about this third part. Continuing in prayer. Continuing in prayer. The disciples get this message from the angel and we find in verse 12 they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And we find a small band of timid followers huddled together in an upper room. They know they need God's power. You know, we don't find them plotting strategies. They were joined together constantly in prayer. See, the first church knew that they could do nothing without God. They were active in prayer and fasting, expressing their need for God so that their lives could show forth His glory to all people and nations. It's amazing in India, so many different things, but even the way that they pray and the way that they present corporate prayer. Um, Brother Justice, who's, who's our missionary there, his son Alan is 28 years old. And he's a pastor of a church that's about 90 minutes away. Now, it's not that many kilometers away, but with the roads and the traffic, it's about 90 minutes away one way. You know, Alan goes there 
uh, one time a week for a church service. He goes there are three other times a week to pray with the people. On Fridays, he goes there for prayer and fasting. One night, our chef, Paul, just is such a dear, dear man. He was having a conversation with me. And he said, um, he said, how many times in the year do American Christians fast? I didn't even want to answer him. I quote, well, you know, we... Yeah. Tell, us about your, tell us about your mission. His church, every Friday, they fast the whole day in fasting and prayer. Many of the churches in India start the year in January with a 21-day fast. And they have nothing, but they have everything. See, one of, one of the girls said this in the testimony time. I think it's ginger, maybe. The fact that we have more means we have more to worry about. You know why you're worried about stuff? Because you have stuff. It's the only reason why you're worried about it. If you didn't have it, you couldn't worry about it. You know why we're so miserable in America? We have marriages splitting up and kids rebelling because we have way too much stuff. And if we could get rid of some of the junk and stuff out of our lives and get to a place where we're praying as a people, things would change. But we've gotten so good at doing church. And it's almost like we're the Laodicean church in Revelation 3 where Jesus is standing on the outside, knocking on the door and saying, Hey, could I come in? Like, wait just a second, we're having church, Jesus. Don't come in right now, just wait. Sometimes we miss the whole idea. We miss the whole reason for what God has put us on the earth to do. And so there's definitely some priorities that we need to fix on that. I'm going to be thinking and praying along those lines. If you're a parent, you love providing for your kids. And any time I get back from a trip, our daughter Autumn is waiting with a big smile on her face. And if you know Autumn, she gives you this shy little grin, and then she'll say, Dad, did you get me something? And uh, she just got that big grin, and I say, I maybe might have got you something. And she just starts hugging. And if you ever had an Autumn hug, you may not have ribs left. I mean, she just, she's so excited. And, and why would I not get something for her if I could get a hug that big? Um, and, and I know that you're the same way with your kids, and it reminds me of a passage in Luke chapter 11. Turn over there, because I'm sure you've seen this before. But there may have been a phrase that we missed as we read this passage so many times. I want you to see this. It's really profound. Luke chapter 11 Verse number 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Well, some of you dads probably would. Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Say, so son asks for a fish to eat, he gives him a snake instead. 
Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Thomas, one of the guys on the trip, found a scorpion one day when we were painting at the school. And he's showing that off. And uh, I didn't really need to see it. I'm, I'm good without him. Um, but, but here you see this, Jesus is given these, these huge opposites. Now look at verse number 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Now what does the Father give to those who ask? He gives the Holy Spirit. You're like, well, what if I was asking for something else? That's what He gives you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Why does the Father give the Spirit in response to my prayers? Think about it. You're going through a struggle. You go to God and you ask for comfort. And instead of comfort, He gives you the Comforter. Think about that for a minute. Because that's one of the things we pray for, right? God, comfort this person. Would you take the burden from this person? And when we ask that prayer... God actually gives the comforter. So many times, you've, you've been here before, you're making a big decision, and you go to God and ask for guidance. And instead of guidance, He gives you the guide. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit our indwelling guide, our personal teacher, the one who guides us to all truth. You're run down and you need refreshment and renewal and strength, and you ask God for help. And He provides the greatest resource possible. The power of God working directly in your heart, your soul, and your life. We ask God for gifts. And He gives us the giver. Sometimes we miss it. Because we don't respond to the Spirit's working in our lives. It's so easy for us to push the Spirit away and to quench the Spirit. And it's so easy for us to pray a prayer request to God and then say, God, you never answered my prayer. Maybe we should read Luke eleven thirteen. He did answer your prayer. He gave you the Holy Spirit. You have everything you need as a believer to follow Jesus Christ in the commission. You've been given everything that you need. No, we all have so much to learn about prayer. And prayer has this huge role in fulfilling the commission. Before the day of Pentecost came, before they went out into the world to preach the gospel, they were active in prayer. In fact, when the Spirit came upon them, they were doing what? Praying in an upper room. Let's see this last one. Teaching and preaching Jesus. Teaching and preaching Jesus. There's a term we still use today in in church work, and you've probably heard it before, it's, it's called layman. Now, it's not a biblical term. And there's no indication of anything like it in the Bible. The term and the meaning were invented by the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages to separate the qualified priests from the unqualified laity congregation. Right? You're not qualified to read the Scriptures. Only the priests can do that. You're not qualified to talk to God. You've got to talk through Him. Now, those things aren't in the Bible, but that's what they came up with. And if that's your heritage, I'm not picking on that or picking on you, just kind of opening up that thought process in your mind. But that term, 
as I read the New Testament, is not anything close to what God actually designed. In fact, I find that every member of the body of Christ is to minister in the kingdom. Certainly, God advocates that we have local church leadership, but that never diminishes the role each individual should play. And and because of this whole layman philosophy, it's not uncommon to hear Christians say, well, not everyone is called to foreign missions. Or it might be even more specific, I'm not called to foreign missions. And when those words come out of our mouths, it's because we're referring to foreign missions as an optional program in the church for a faithful few who are apparently called to do that. Only a select few are good and passionate about missions. So the rest of us are willing to watch slideshows when the missionaries come through or report in. But in the end, God has not called most of us to do the mission thing. Can I tell you, we couldn't be more wrong. Where in the Bible is missions ever identified by God as an optional program in the church? That's the program of the church. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And in fact, we're created by God and saved from sin so that we can make His glory known to the world. Jesus Jesus hasn't just called us to go to all nations. He created us and commanded us to go to all nations. Now, there are commands in Scripture that everybody buys into. And then there are commands in Scripture that we reserve for apparently the only the elite few. We read in Matthew 11 where it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know what we say? Oh, that means me. That means me. That promise is for me. That command is for me. But when we read in Acts 1.8 that the Spirit will lead us to the ends of the earth, we say, well, that means some people. Right? So there's, there's kind of this diversity in how we look at the Scripture. See, if it's a great Scripture and it applies to this heavenly, wonderful benefit, oh, that's, for, that's me. God promised that to me. But when we read, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, oh, that brother, I'm glad he's doing that. Sure, I'm glad that missionary came through that's going to Egypt. Guess I don't have to go. And that's an abrupt truth. This is one of the quietest services I've been a part of for a long time. We want the privileges of being a Christian for us all, but the obligations of a Christian are apparently reserved for only a select few. Now don't get me wrong, we do have different gifts and callings, but the Great Commission isn't limited by that. In fact, it's enhanced by that. God gave us different gifts so that we can reach out to different people and people groups. God made you to fulfill the Great Commission if you're a child of God. I love this quote from David Platt. Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. Turn with me to Romans 1. I just want to show you a verse. I I think you're familiar with it. 
as Paul defines and explains the gospel just before the famous verse in verse 16 where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 14. I am debtor. Both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. You know, if you're a child of God this morning, you are a debtor to the nations. You owe the gospel to them. You say, Pastor, I'm part of Faith Promise. That's terrific. Faith Promise giving helps us to send missionaries across the world. But I'd like to take it a step further in our minds this morning. So often we excuse ourselves and we say, well, I'm just not called to that. What about the needs here in America? Do you know that Christians in North America give, on average, 2.5% of their income to their church? Out of that 2.5%, churches give an average of 2% of all their budgeted money to needs outside the United States. In other words, for every $100 a North American Christian earns, he will give 5 Sense through the church to a world with urgent spiritual and physical needs. India is now estimated to have more people than China. Well over 1.4 billion people. Northern India has 600 million people. Fewer than one half of 1% of them identify themselves as as evangelical Christians. In the state of Tamil Nadu, where we just were in South India, there are over 24,000 villages, none with fewer than 7,000 people. The only Baptist churches in the entire state are the ones that the Calvary Baptist Foundation has started. Over 200 million people condensed in this massive area with fewer than 500 churches. The justice told me again, we have pastors waiting to start churches. All it takes is 50 American dollars a month to start a church. 50 American dollars will support a new pastor to start a church in India. Next time you go and grab that $4.50 latte, That's something to think about. Now, I get the $2 Americana, so it takes away some of my guilt. (laughs) Next time you grab the Big Mac or the cheeseburger, not only are you getting horrible meat, but you're wasting your money. You know, God's given us resources, folks. And and I want to challenge you with a thought this morning as a close. Being a part of short-term missions will change the results of long-term missions significantly. If you're a part of short-term missions, it will change your life long-term forever to be a servant of God. And what if you would dedicate 2% of your time every year to mission work outside of our local area? You know that works out to be about one week. Here's what I submit. If we would do that, Centennial would be changed indefinitely. We would be centered on the Great Commission like never before. We would realize that eternity is at hand. 
And whether or not we got the new DVR or the new iPad or the new iPod or whatever, souls across the world are dying, spending eternity without Christ. And it puts it into perspective. See, your time overseas will transform your time across the street. We're going to show the slideshow, Lord willing, next Sunday. And you're just going to be blown away by the opportunities that people had on this trip. We're already looking at a trip. It's a smaller group for, for 2014 to Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia. And uh, God is opening some doors for us to get out and to see what's going on around this world so that we can come back and build a fire in our own hearts for the Great Commission. I was reading, I'd read this before, but it's been a, a while. Adoniram Judson, whether you've heard of him or not, he was the first Baptist missionary ever sent from America. And he believed God was leading him to spend his life spreading the gospel to a people that he'd never met. He met a woman named Anne, a young lady, and he fell in love with her. But he needed to ask Anne's father for permission to marry her. That was still a custom back in those days. It ought to be one still today. But here's the letter that he wrote. Here's what he said. Listen to this letter. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen save through her means from eternal woe and despair? Now, all you dads who have a daughter, how would you respond to old Ad Adoniram? Like, Adoniram, find a new girl. Well, his father-in-law approved. And in the end, Anne went with him to Burma, and it did cost her her life. In fact, in 38 years overseas, Adoniram Judson lost two wives and seven children to premature death. Yet today, in Burma, the new name is Myanmar, there are nearly 4,000 Baptist churches with over a half million followers in the heart of Buddhist territory. And they're still serving God. See, the Judsons believed that the worship of God was worth their very lives. And my question this morning is, what do we truly believe about the Great Commission? Here am I, Lord, send him. That's a lot of times your thought process. You say, Pastor, you asked a lot of questions today. You brought up a lot of thoughts. What are the answers? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet. But I know this, God wants us to have a local church centered upon the Great Commission. From Caldwell to Canyon County to our state to our region to the uttermost parts of the earth. You'll see a picture next, next week. The school where we ministered had over 900 kids. You know what the name of the little village is? 
Colvel. K-O-L-V-E-L. Colvel. And so we went from Caldwell to Colvel and got to minister. As a church today, we're going to end the service this way, different than we probably normally would. I'm going to ask you to bow your heart before God. And let's ask as a group to God, what could we do as a local church in response to the Great Commission? Let's bow. As we bow and with no one looking, no one looking around, let me mention this. If you're here today without Jesus Christ, if you'd like to know that you could have eternal life, we want to talk to you. We love you. And I hope you'll take my hand after the service or talk to one of our folks here and they'd show you from the Word of God how you can know for certain you're a child of God. If you're a part of Centennial this morning or you're a regular attender, would you pray with me right now regarding the Great Commission? Our Father in Heaven, we come to you as a people of unclean lips. We are undone. Without your mercy, we would spend all eternity in hell. There is nothing in us by our own goodness or by our own works that can come before you. And so we ask today that you would give us a heart for the world. That you would help us to know how we could be a part of the Great Commission like never before. Someday, as we stand in eternity, we pray that we would look back and say, this is a day. The decisions that we made this day by the power of God and for His glory changed the souls, not only of us, but of people around the world. Pray that you would guide us safely to our homes this afternoon and bring us back for a special time of the evening service. We thank you again for the opportunities you've given to all of us. Guide us now in a special way, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, everybody. God bless you. You're dismissed.